This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400 gig and 800 gig enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Welcome back, everybody. We have another guest, exciting guest with us for IT Visionaries. His name is Derek Grimes. He's the SVP of operations at a company called Frontage Clinical Services. Derek is a clinical and IT operations executive with over 20 years of management experience and consistent success in achieving revenue, cost, productivity, and delivery goals in clinical settings. Prior to this, he was the CIO of a urology clinic. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get too deep into it, talk a little bit about what is Frontage Clinical Services, because you and I talked before the interview, and we learned, I learned a great deal about how you help other medical offices, but for our audience to get to know you a little bit better so they can understand where the conversation is coming from, if you could, please explain what it is you currently do at Frontage. Absolutely. Uh, Frontage Clinical Services is a subsidiary of a larger company called Frontage Laboratories. Um, We are a full-service clinical research organization that focuses on early development of pharmaceutical products, drugs. Um, My role is um, overseeing the entire operation function of the research, uh, human subject research division, so humans in doing phase one trials within the frontage clinical services. So that's um, personnel, P&L, IT, and anything else that's that's associated with the function of frontage clinical services. Cool. And for our audience who may not understand, what exactly is a CRO and what role does it play? Because sure, I'm familiar with it a little bit, but of course, our audience may not be as familiar. Most of our audience, as you know, is they're in IT, tech yeah. sector, developers, engineers. Absolutely. Give us an idea. Why does a CRO even need to exist? Absolutely. Um, so let me take you back, uh, let's say, 20 years and help you understand the progression of drug development in the U.S. and globally. A CRO is basically an extension of the pharmaceutical industry. What we are is an independent contractor for industry to conduct clinical trials for um, companies just say like Pfizer. Right? And we'll use Pfizer as an example. So 20 years ago, Pfizer would do their own studies with a contract organization or a site or an academic center and manage that process from soup to nuts. That was an arduous task. Pharma had generally longer timelines than it, they needed to get drug to market. So th- an intermediary started um, quite a few years, 20, 20 plus years ago, where they acted as the contract organization that would handle all the logistics, the information technology, the subject gathering, the data, data management, all that stuff that's associated with a trial process and do that for industry. So it created a a third-party vendor that would support clinical research. And that's what a CRO is. It's that um, management company that structures, develops, and launches trials for industry. I happen to be on the early development side, which is a little unique. Phase one, my area of expertise is in phase one, which is a lot more entrepreneurial in its approach because we develop protocols from scratch. We don't have a recipe from of success from a previous trial. So we're doing first in human trials. So we generally have to build a program based off of small amounts of knowledge that we have from preclinical and then bring that into a clinical environment to follow a recipe to get the drug to the next phase 
obviously there are set types of protocols that you follow, but the drug itself could be very new and all those things that are associated with a new drug development, they're unknown. So you have to figure those out before you go live with a drug. Uh, similar to building a technical platform, you have to work out the bugs and kinks before you get to the next stage. Uh, drug development is no different. First phase of research is generally to understand safety of a drug. And that's where uh, my expertise lies with developing, managing, and understanding the safety of a new drug or new molecule. Yeah. And give us a, give our audience an idea of the landscape of what it takes on a technological level to even yep. accomplish this. Because yes. from my understanding, you're talking about, you know, I don't want to say thousands, but I think most studies are like, you're talking about thousands of doctors or patients in multiple different offices, all working through very private data. They're not moving data through public clouds. That's right. They need this privatized data to be secured, to be accurate. And then it's got to move to a central location for analysis. Yep. And it's a co concentrated effort across many, many doctors who are not actually employed, to my understanding, by frontage. Like you are running the study, but like if I'm Dr. I'm Dr. Al in North Carolina, you don't know what systems I have. You don't know what technological requirements I have. I'm just kind of part of the process. I have patients that need this, uh, let's say this drug, they, they want to be part of the study because they need help. But you have to then figure out a way to get all the information from me to you. And then from my understanding, also the doctors, sometimes they don't want to change what they have. So if they have something that's not compatible, um, it potentially gets a little problems. But give us an idea. Is that Am I describing that landscape correctly of what it takes to do a study like this? Absolutely. So um, just to set the stage a little bit for the audience, clinical research is about 10 plus years ahead of uh, general medicine. So I've I've played in both space. I, I was an executive for most of my career in academic-based medicine and research. For spent uh, ten years of my life at Columbia University and NYU, managing and developing programs and research, as well as general medicine or what I call standard of care um, practice models. And was involved in the transformation of paper data to um, EMRs. So early on in my career, I was a medical oncology at Columbia, and we had to take a bunch of paper charts and figure out a way to get that onto an EMR, which was a brand new concept. And everyone was saying, how are we going to do this? So research, for all intents and purposes, is way ahead of that um, standard of care curve. So for most of my life, I've been developing software um, before software was over the, uh, you know, off the shelf to manage data that would be efficient for a large data collection process, which is a clinical trial. So clinical trials is really about the collection of data, cleaning that data, and then providing that data in a clean, secure environment to the sponsor so they can analyze that and make, make certain determinations about where it's going or where it should go if it meets its endpoints and or its, uh, its statistical standards. So let's go back to 2005. Um, EMRs were kind of emerging, uh, things were uh, all over the place. We had things called EDC, electronic data capture in research. And we were, we've been doing things with wearables, digital and portable devices, uh, kiosks to, to manage patient data in research long before uh, a large hospital institution and or even a private care facility was doing these types of things. So we cut our teeth on data collection, data management, data process in cloud storage and all that stuff well before um, general medicine or what I call standard care got involved. So when I moved into a standard care model 
with a company like New Jersey Urology, for instance, all the things they were trying to do, I had many, many years of experience from the ground up, building, developing, managing, and then uh, launching those types of platforms on a small scale, but ahead of the curve from what general medicine is trying to do. Standardize the process and care uh, where we've been doing that research forever. Um, or not forever, but for a long time. We still use yeah. paper source um, in trials up until recently. In some trials, still do use paper source and convert that into an EDC. We've gone more to what we call a direct data entry model or an e-source model where you don't have any paper and you do scanning and, and, and you capture data electronically without that paper source. So that's the latest wave of research and collecting medical data in research. In phase three is kind of what you were framing out. You can have hundreds of physicians on a trial and you can have millions of data points and have hundreds of different, uh, different clinical pathways to get that, but you still have to standardize that into one EDC system so that everything is being collected, managed, and maintained properly and following the same set of regs, same set of process, same part, same cleaning. And then there's certain specifications that are required by the federal government to submit that data. Um, it can't be in an Excel spreadsheet, for instance. It has to be validated, <laughs> a Part 11 compliant data. Um, and again, these were all regulated on us for years. So research has really been pushing medicine without the people in medicine really knowing that. So when you cross over and you go back and forth, you see the difference. In, and it's what may be standard of care for me. And research is really new concept to a private practice, for instance, or even a hospital system, um, and which really helped me drive a company like New Jersey Urology as their CIO and help them understand how to pull together uh, technical resources into one platform, um, manage data properly, use data analytics to our advantage, um, and then how do we how do we even, um, understand the data that we're collecting and use it in clinical trials, for recruitment, for data management, all the things that. Uh, we do in a, in a daily setting in a clinical research environment as as I'm running here. Real quick, I want to restate what you just said. So our audience, hopefully they didn't just, they didn't pass over, but, you know, Derek is talking about how the industry of research is so much further ahead than the actual technological investment of the actual medical practitioners. And so this concept that this concept lives, especially in software engineering, I yep. feel like, uh, with advent of open source and so on, yep. is that people seemingly in technology seemingly collaborate a lot to develop new languages, to develop new models, to develop new code so that things can move more efficiently. Like yes. there's bootstrap libraries for front-end engineers so that they don't have to recreate things all the time. You have SSO providers that make it easy to integrate SSO into your application so you don't have to actually build it each each and every single single time. But when you the way you describe medicine is what I learned back at Emory in 2003 or 4 <laughs> is that each of these offices, the actual practitioners of medicine, they are not it's it's not a, it's nothing against them. They're just not yeah. doing it and whether through laws, regulations, I'm not saying the yeah. reason why, but they're all using disparate systems. It's yes. what you just said. Like they're, they're like at least 10 years behind. Yes. Give us an idea of what that – first of all, I guess I'll start here. Is it improving? Like is are things improving? Do you see more offices like you were part of? Are they starting to invest in, uh, let's say, more modern technologies so that it is easier to transfer data so they don't have to rely on, let's say, antiquated systems? Yes. It's definitely getting better. The CIO is now a part of the boardroom. When I – 
when I would sit with board meetings, there's an actual business uh, push from a CIO. What, where, where do we need to get through to technology? And we're not a, an ancillary or secondary endpoint anymore in the boardroom. We're really a driving force. And that's something that's changing in medicine as well. So when you have that um, leadership that's driving integrating process, integrating tech, uh, people through technology, yes, I, I've seen a shift. I think the shift really needs to happen with the patient. The patient needs to drive the vehicle versus the institution. So with EMRs and things of that nature, they're great at collecting data, um, but they don't create a real good user environment for patients. So we're all patients um, and we have a clumsy network of apps and devices and software that allows us to get to certain points of our data, but um, it cuts us off at really critical points. And when you're a sick person, there's nothing more valuable to you than be able to have that data and manage it with your physicians that you're engaged with. So that needs to change. And that's what I've been working on uh, as an entrepreneur, as a person that prides himself on innovation and creating concepts and, and making them real. Some of the physicians that I used to work with and I have talked about strategies on how to make that process better, right? Um, getting rid of the uh, the portals from an EMR and creating a patient-centric app, for instance, where they can collect data from all points, not just from one particular EMR, but every EMR. Go to a, go try and get a, a scan from a, a, an MRI right now. You get a disc. Who, who looks at a disc anymore? How do you run a disc, <laughs> right? You have to also physically pick it up. That's right. You, you like literally have to go physically. Absolutely. So, so, so for anyone listening, give Derek, give us an idea. An EMR, electronic medical record. That's right. These are, you know, these aren't emails. These are <laughs> right. massive Correct. files. Give us an idea of like how much data is an MRI scan, which I've unfortunately had to be part of. But give us an idea how much data is in an MRI scan. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but a large amount of data in an MRI scan. But it's not, the, it's not so much that you can't manage it in a user platform. So think about yourself, for instance, you have a car, let's just say you have a BMW and you need service on that car. You're going to get a friendly push, a reminder that you need service. You're going to get white glove texting back and forth with that service agent. You're going to have a delivery day. You're going to have a time of pickup, time of drop off, all that good stuff. We don't do any of that in medicine right now. We try, we try and do things like that. But my car care is far better than what I can do with my own personal care. And as a person that will be a patient, is a patient, those things need to change. And I think as IT innovators, we need to consistently think about the patient first and how that benefits everybody because we're all patients, not just uh, not just part of a system. We're, we're going to at one point in our life be involved as a patient. Um, how do we make those transactions and those uh, IT infrastructures better, more user-friendly to benefit the patient? And that's really the next focus in in um, healthcare medicine, uh, healthcare IT, uh, even research. You know, I developed an app 10 years ago in research that large EMRs are using now to do the same thing that we've been doing for 10 years in research. We were doing telemedicine visits in dermatological studies to assess erythema, edema, irritation through telemedicine 10 years ago. Uh, and people are talking like it's a new concept. These are not new concepts. It just has to be integrated better with a patient, um, creating a level of comfort, convenience. Uh, patients shouldn't be inconvenienced because medicine hasn't caught up to how to collect a bill for that. And, and that's really what we need to change, the mentality of how we practice medicine um, and get people, it, it, the users, uh, having a more friendly uh, interface. So you mentioned this before that it's probably going to come from the patients. 
Yes. And I wanted to kind of lay lay this landscape out because I'm I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. So right now there's two massive hospital management systems that we that that dominate the playing field, uh, Cerner and um, Epic, yep. right? And then, so those are the two biggest players. And of course there's other players beneath, uh, as part of it. A lot of the family offices, they probably don't subscribe to one of those, but they, they'll have something else, a smaller one. Yes. So, so think of it if, so if you're listening to this, think of it like CRMs, right? Like there's yep. like enterprise CRMs for big companies and there's like small ones for like mom and pops. And this is the same thing with um, medical records. So for us as patients, you mentioned I have not met somebody in the last 15 years who thinks their doctor is like really good, Yeah, (laughs) which is crazy. You know what I mean? Like we all kind of have the same complaints. You're given an appointment time. You show up. They're not ready to see. You kind of wait around the waiting room. They're not there yet. The doctor shows up for 10, 15 minutes. Maybe he doesn't even show up. Maybe a PA um, checks you out and then puts you on your way. You don't know how much it costs. You get this bill. It bills the insurance. Insurance then says, hey, we cover X percent. And then why the balance is yours. Yep. And you're like, I don't, I think I got a bandaid. I don't even know what happened. <laughs> right. And it, and it takes like, it takes more than 30 days, uh, That's right. this process. Uh, and then for some of us, when we want care, we can't even go see a specialist because we need a referral, which is crazy. And then, <laughs> and then the specialist might not see you for a really long time. So like, I'll give an example, especially if it's not considered like life-threatening, right? So like uh, my wife, she was trying to get varicose veins removed. Yep. And they were like, we can't see you for six months. I was like, yeah. That's crazy. So we as patients suffer from this. Yep. What is stopping us from demanding more of our providers to be like, hey, why can't you just send this? Why can't you see me sooner? Why can't you, you know, instead of demanding referral why can't you we tell a health a referral or why do i need referral or like why aren't patients i guess clamoring for this because it feels like we all agree that this is a problem but how do we solve it it's a multifaceted and and i won't be able to answer everything you ask but i can give sure. you my best shot um hmos and managed cares change the way medicine's practice as we all know so there's a business of medicine and there's a business of insurance and they have conflicting views on what what is proper, what's not. And then when you're a payer, when you're making the payments for a service, you can dictate those rules as any transaction, business transaction. You, you negotiate a rate, you get paid for that rate. In a managed care model, that's what happens. It's not so much the physicians are bad or they have something, they're doing something wrong. They're also inundated with uh, contract payers that uh, su- supply them with a, a, a large amount of patients, for instance, in a certain care model or managed care model. And then they're flooded with those patients that are paying a less rate to see that doctor or they're getting the doctors getting paid a less rate, but are getting higher volume. So that that clogs up the wheel if you, or clogs up the machine, if you will. It's not the physician's fault. It's the business that he's in and he's trying to make money or she's trying to make money to get food on their table. And they're making a killing because it's a capitated negotiated rate. And then they have a high volume game to try and make ends meet. Um, so it, the physician gets blamed a lot for poor practice model where I think it can change and it has to change is why, well, if I knew my car was being um, delayed for two hours from the dealership, there would be a push to me that says, hey, listen, we're not going to be able to see you for two hours. Please come in at 1030. If that's OK, press OK. If not, you know, we can reschedule something to that effect where medicine, we don't get anything. We go in a waiting room. We sit there for three hours. I have no idea. There's no communication. And that that's getting a little bit better. So um, technology can enhance that that patient physician experience or t- patient healthcare experience. 
visibility to uh, what we're paying for is happening. So, so the federal government has seen that as we have as patients and saying, okay, we need transparency on what you're billing uh, and why you're billing that and how much is covered and how much is not. And so we'll see that transition happen and it is happening um, as we speak, but it needs to be better, right? It's like going to Target and not knowing what you're paying for your groceries until you until you check out because there's no pricing on any of the aisles and any of this stuff. And then all of a sudden you go, you have, oh, Target's going to cover 10% of your bill because you have a coupon and then the rest is on you. Um, that's what healthcare is basically. You go in, you have insurance, you have certain rates, you have all these complicated formulas of how you're going to get covered. And then next thing you know, you get a bill that you had no idea that the bill is going to be X dollars. Um, and that that needs to change and it will. Uh, and patients need to push for that. And and we need to push our federal government and, and the model uh, to a better place. And not to say that the federal government does things great, but they would have the power to make change on such a large scale to get visibility to payment or to bills. The other piece is um, when you have two major players in the EMR space, the interface, or the inoperability for other EMRs is, is detrimental. So I'm a mom pop trying to make it work. I'm trying to work with X hospital system there on Epic and there's no interface. So as soon as I go to my mom and pop, can you bring your charts with you? Can you bring your like who can do that? Uh, you know, especially when you're not feeling well, you have an issue. Those are really hard things to ask a patient to do. And we need to change that. That inoperability needs that. Their interface needs to be mandated, not uh, a business decision. So EMRs need to be able to speak better. There needs to be a play that allows us to have that operability, that interface. Uh, until that happens, it's going to be a segmented system and the, the bigger players are going to win out in that, that market. So that's going to come from us as well. Um, when we're tired of printing out or bringing a, a CD-ROM to a physician's office so they can read an MRI or a CAT scan or X-ray. For instance, my wife had a procedure this morning. Um, she got up at six o'clock in the morning. We have a little guy at home. So she said, can you watch a little guy? I'm going to go get a procedure done. Um, I, I should be back by 8 a.m. So she gets to the physician, to the to the um, MRI suite. They say, oh, we can't see you. You don't have a prescription. And she's like, what are you talking about? The prescription's on the EMR. Well, you don't have the physical prescription. Well, what's the prescription in the EMR for, right? Does it not matter? <laughs> Um, so they were going to cancel her her procedure because she didn't have the actual piece of paper. No one else would That's do crazy. that in the world and and in any business. And we've created these convoluted rules, and you know we don't have interfacing capabilities. We don't have platform. even even the large players, the ones we talked about, can't communicate with smaller uh, institutions because they have a different type of epic, for instance. So there is no interface mm. and you got to build that. And then I don't want to build that because they're my competitor and I don't want to give them a competitive advantage. So, you know, that's that's where we as patients need to push back and say, I want to take control of my healthcare. I want to be able to see my patient medical records. I want to be able to know that I'm okay to go to the doctor and it's going to cost me $400 versus an unknown, you know, those types of things. And, and I want to see my labs, which is happening now um, within a short period of time versus six months later when you go into a platform that you can't even navigate. Um, so those things need to change. 
Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zeo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zeo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high-capacity metro fiber and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zeo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zeo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low-latency, reliable 400G and 800G-enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com slash network right now. Yeah, we had the, the, the way you talked about it reminded me very much so of the CTO of uh, TruePill. He was on our show once and he talked about how the challenges that are in front of him, he it listed out the challenges that you mentioned right there, which is he's trying to create a unified system or like an API layer almost mm-hmm. that allows these tools to all communicate so that your doctor, your pharmacist, like you're in, in where you, the patient are in the middle where you can see the prescription, you know, that it's been received um, because that was, that was something that was unbelievably frustrating for myself. Yeah. Uh, I've told the story before on previous episodes, but if you haven't heard those, when my mother was dying from cancer, uh, during a cancer treatment, they will change the prescription on you quite often, yes. right? So like, it's like a cocktail of drugs. Uh, they don't, the doctors never really know what's going to work. Everybody reacts differently. You come in and you get seen and they could change the prescription very quickly uh, because certain things aren't working. But it was frustrating because literally you know, they would send, they would say, hey, this is going to be available at this drugstore. You go to the drugstore, they say they don't have it. It's like, how does you're like, how is this supply? This simple thing, like you kind of talked about this simple thing of saying, Hey, you need this medicine. It's available here. You show up at the place. They say, we don't have it. Yep. Now do that with a car, right? You say, you need an auto (laughs) part. You need an auto part. You need a tire. It's not hard to do um, inventory management. Um, And now we're talking about saving people's lives or a cancer patient that needs, you know, and, a medication that's that's totally beneficial for their health and you can't go to the cvs up the street because they don't know how to do inventory management with the system that they're, they're working with so it just it's really it's ludicrous and we not enough people have um really got stuck together as a, a unified voice to say we need to change this um and that yeah. and that's a passion of mine i also lost a wife to cancer at a young age and and lived that uh, same thing as you um, I, I was uh, an advocate for her. I was in the healthcare system, understood medicine, and I still couldn't navigate. Um, so there were hospital-based pharmacy medic prescriptions that I could only get at the hospital. Then I would have to go to CVS to get certain other pr- prescriptions. And they, they would only do it over 60 days because it was a, a high-cost prescription. So I had to get a mail-in prescription. So I, I dealt with that. At a, and um, as a patient uh, caregiver, um, it was very, very frustrating, and um, and it's part of the reason I think it could we could do better at this. Yeah, the the way you described the car situation, I was just thinking about like if I wanted to order tires for my my minivan. Yep, <laughs> I always tout that I drive a minivan. It's, yeah. it's the most functional car. Um, but if I wanted, like you just said, like if I needed tires for my minivan, I could look up any location. I could see their stock. Uh, I've yet to be tricked. Like I've yet to show up and it's not there. Yeah, but I've done. I've gone many times to pharmacy and the prescription's not there. Correct. Or they, they'll say they didn't receive it or whatever. But anytime I've booked an appointment to get my tires changed, it's worked out. <laughs> so <Yeah>. that's... <laughs> that's- Typical scheduling in a hospital environment or even a patient private care environment. There's no um, module in an EMR that makes that easy. 
Okay. So you take a large system. Let's take a large EMR and I'll use Epic example. There's no quick interface to create a surgical scheduling platform for a private care facility in Epic. It, it's there, it's somewhat available, it's not customizable, it's not a GUI interface. It's really complicated to get a schedule put together for surgery uh, in an EMR, which I found really difficult to swallow and saying, mm. none of us have put this together yet. Why are we having such a hard time getting an interface with a surgical scheduling for our surgeries in an EMR that's world renowned? Uh, you know, the, it's not Epic's problem. It's our problem. It's, it's, it's healthcare administrators and executives problem. Why have we not pushed back hard enough to get a better module for that? And you, and you can see that throughout all of medicine, um, our app development are, are atrocious. Um, we talk about apps and patient care apps and this, app, but we all use them. They're limited at best. And yeah. you don't get what you're looking for, for the most part. And the data is, you know, where's it going? We don't have transparency. So those things need to be resolved. And, and again, it starts with the patient first. In my mind, when I can take control of that and I can go to every, I can go to Dr. X, Y, and Z and know I have all the documents I need as a patient to go anywhere in that health model or a healthcare model, I'm good. I'm better than I was before today if I can do that. And that's really a push that I've been making and trying to develop a system that goes outside of the EMR, creates a platform for us as patients to be able to store that data properly, quickly, and then um, get away from the competitive payer model and the competitive EMR space and say, I'm taking control of this. Um, and hopefully within the next year, I have some solutions to provide industry with that and say, here you go, including scans, MRIs, uh, x-rays, PET scans, et cetera, dump it into a one patient focused platform. So, you know, when I hear you talk, it echoes a sentiment that's said in every industry, which is just this, this, it sounds like the real limiting factor in the healthcare system is really interoperability. Yep. 100%. Like there's, there's no, there's limited interoperability. And there's also, like you said, the incentive structure to interoperate isn't quite there. Yes. And therefore it's going to have to be patients demanding like, Hey, I demand to this. I want this. This is what I like. Um, and then of course, if someone ever figures it out, the the idea is that they would be able to see more patients and yes. get, provide better care. Now you've been there. You've been on the front lines of a unifying system of, of hospitals. Yep. You've also been part of, like you said, your current job, you're unifying or aligning independent general practitioners to your systems. I don't want the whole show to be more doom and gloom because we've kind of yeah. set the problem. Give us an idea of what the future of medicine is going to look like if we can solve this problem because there's so many groundbreaking things that if, if – so like I'll use my example and I'd love to hear some of yours. If we can interoperate and we can be more like software development is in every other industry where we can all work together, like think about the ability to – Let's use early cancer detection. It sounds like this is part, you know, it's affected you. It's affected me. It's affected probably every listener. Yep. You probably know Absolutely. somebody who's been afflicted with cancer. Like how did, how did Google learn how to recognize dogs? Yeah. I mean, photos. They had a huge data set. If we could interoperate and get these data sets into the right systems, into the hands of great AI companies, machine learning, whatever the case may yep. be, that can identify these things faster. If we could get an MRI scan, if we could get a scan directly into these systems quickly so that they don't need to be, you don't, you do, they don't need to wait for an expert. They'll quickly be able to see what is going on. You know, this concept of interoperability and security is really what we're talking about. Yep. You know, you're seeing it firsthand because sure. you've seen some companies adapt. Give us some hope. What does it look like when this comes true? Yeah. So in research, um, I've been exposed to things that we're seeing in the news now. So 
understanding genomics and genetics and tumor types, using AI to match them to a therapeutic that would give them advantage on treating that cancer. And we see that right now. So um, creating treatment models using artificial intelligence to go through eons of data to get to a point of matching a therapeutic method to that tumor type. That's where we're going in medicine using technology, which is really exciting. And the other play, um, we talked about volume in, in healthcare. Physicians uh, are overwhelmed. It's not that they don't want to see. They want to see more patients. Uh, physicians love seeing patients. That's their drive in life, right? It's not, a, it's not about money. It's, not about, it's about taking care of people. Most of the physicians that I've engaged in is really there for the love of the patient. Um, and what I'm seeing that we can use technology, and you mentioned AI, using AI to deal with the nuisance calls that physicians deal with at night, in the morning, in the evenings, Saturdays and Sundays, that my bandage needs to be changed. How do I do that? Um, my stitches <laughs> fell out. Like, um, you know, I have a headache post All the things that an AI software could answer uh, for a physician to keep them out of the little stuff that a patient may bring yeah. to the table. And they're concerned. Patients should be concerned. But there's got to be a better way to deal with the, the what I would call the minutia of medicine where that can be freed up for that physician. And, and I've had some conversations with industry about that. And how do we get there? How do we program artificial intelligence to deal with those types of things that burden our healthcare system? So that's exciting. And I think we'll see that cancer care in itself and genomics using AI to map out genomics and genomic genetic profiling is huge. Um, and, and we're only on the tip of the iceberg. Um, and I think that's really, really exciting. Wearables, um, we see that all the time now. We're starting to see that um, on television with with diabetes measurements, uh, you know, A1C measurement. So you'll see these wearables explode over the next 10, 15 years where um, we're really monitoring our health through biometrics, wearable biometrics. Um, and that's only going to benefit us all. So uh, things like an Apple Watch that are doing cardio measurements or you could do blood pressure, you know, things that really are important to us as patient and getting better care um, at early access points through, again, from the patient. So wearables are something that's really exciting, and I, I've, um, I'm really excited to see where they can go. Interactive medicine um, with wearables, so um, putting antibiotics and bandages and mm. interfacing antibiotics into an implant for a tooth, for instance, where you microsurface the tooth. When you do an implant, it helps you um, eliminate some rejection based on the fact that you microsurface the tooth, put antibiotics in it, and now you have an implant that has a microsurface antibiotic, sur uh, antibiotic surface area, and you're eliminating some of the infection that may happen. You could do that in other areas um, and using technology and understanding how to 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 build better products with technology. Um, those are really the exciting things in medicine, which keeps me up at night and pushing, driving me as a person. If there was a way that we could all interoperate all um, all of our wearables, sensors, uh, systems, and then, like you said, care providers, because so many times, you know, it, it makes total sense. Our care providers are specialists. Yes. They're not generalists. So sometimes it goes... I remember going to a, uh, this happened to me recently. I went to a dentist and I have these like weird bone structures in my jaw and they like, they like bump out and they're like, have you ever had these checked? I said, no, um, you should get them checked because they're abnormally large. I was like, okay. It's like, well, what? And I don't get them checked. And they're like, what? they keep asking me, pestering me. And I keep asking them like, well, why can't you tell me what it is? Right. You clearly yeah. see it. You've taken x-rays. Like we need a different type of scan and a different type of expertise to confirm whether this is a, a cancerous problem or uh -huh. what is it? 
And I was like, but it's been there my whole life. Like, I feel like you should be able to diagnose. But anyways, I got diagnosed by someone else. And it turns out it's nothing. It's just literally the way my jaw is. Uh-huh. Great. Uh, <laughs> but that ordeal took a long time. Like, I, I just didn't understand why they couldn't send the scan over to the other doctor. But what is this? Yep. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Uh, but I, so I picture this future where all these things, all these things that are going to be great actually start at the interoperability level. Just can we move this data securely? Yep. Sure. We got to comply with HIPAA and all that stuff. Yep. Securely between systems easily. We can. We can. And we just have to work together to do that. The people that we're talking to in our audience are thinking the same things that we are. Um, and how do we collaborate? And then medicine, it has a business component there. You know, you don't, we can't do these things for free. So how do we level that landscape so that there's opportunity for startups and others to, to get engaged in that process, to create that operability that we all are looking for? Um, and again, I think it, it still comes back to that patient and the patient's needs. Um, and that and that's the really focus for a physician and the healthcare model has always been the patient needs. So let's not forget that and then push that model, that operability model, and then foster a landscape that benefits us all, including the people developing the software, uh, launching the, so, uh, the platforms, uh, creating the interfaces. We all benefit from this. So it's a win, win, win for the world. All right. Now, so I, now I got to ask you, since you were, a, you were a CIO, you're acting, you know, you're overseeing all these trials across yep. multi-locations. Let's assume some engineers are listening to our show and they're like, you know what? I want my general practitioner to get on board with this as well. And it's going to come from the patient. They're going to go to their general practitioner and be like, hey, you should modernize. And let's pretend they listen to this episode. How, if you were a general practitioner or you were advising one, how would you advise them to modernize? Where should they get started? Digital platforms are key right now. I think that's where I would I would start. You know, everyone has an EMR. So how how are you interfacing with your patients outside of your practice, and how easy is that to do? Right. So uh, what kind of uh, messaging comes from you to you, the outside world, and how quickly can it come back to you? How how much access does the patient have to you directly as a physician? That's important too. Um, so that that in in and outbound communication through digital platforms, digital you know our iPhone or Apple, you know whatever that may be, um, how well are you using that from a practice model? And then how engaged is your clinical staff and your ancillary staff and your med- your um, your your front desk and those engaged in the technology that did, would provide better care to your patients? So listen to what your patients are asking you. Listen to what we're saying that we want to be able to talk to Dr. Smith about something that's bothering us. How do we do that when um, we really have that concern? Um, is there an access point that we can communicate without hostility? Um, and that's really important to the patient right now. I think that's where where I see success. So how do we how do we take away the the walls and create an environment that's um, that goes back and forth that doesn't overburden the the practitioners, but it gives a sense of relief and, and um, care to a patient. That would be the starting point for me to start taking down some of the walls between practitioners and practitioners and patients. So one of the things that that really excited me to have you on as a guest is because you oversaw an operation that was like highly sensitive, yes. right? Urology is a necessary part of medicine, but a lot of men- yep. I'll go with men. I'll speak for men because I'm sure women experience this as well, but I'll speak for men. Super embarrassed, potentially embarrassing, um, sensitive issue, like whether it's a common procedure like a vasectomy. Like there's a lot of 
things that they just, they're nervous about, right? And so part of it's like, you know, do I want data out there yeah. that I'm doing this, that like the communications, like it's going to intercept it. Like, ah, I don't know, people, so you, you dealt with something that I think was highly susceptible and people, or highly, highly sensitive. People are very sensitive to. Um, when you were taking over or modernizing the urology offices, yep. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of pushback, but people were like, probably like, Derek, what do you mean we want to text people their outcomes and, and email yeah. <laughs> email appointments? Like, what are we doing? Like, people don't want to know that this is happening yep. or people don't want their significant other to know this is happening. Like, what, what's what's going on here? You're 100% right. And then you take a demographic <laughs> of patients and, and I'll give you a good example that, oh, my patient's average age is 75 years old, right? So you, the majority of urology is uh, not a majority, but yeah, majority of urology, we have prostate, men have prostate, prostate issues, prostate sure. cancer. So um, that's not true though. And what I learned with dealing with urologic patients is even a 75 year old can text very easily. And in, in once you teach them that quick skill, um, it becomes invaluable to the patients and the practice. So creating efficiencies is valuable, even with sensitive data. Um, and then you're dealing with the patient directly, not the wife, or the girlfriend, um, that that there is sensitive topics that men don't want to talk about, just like a woman wouldn't want to talk about some OBGYN stuff, right? So, yeah. Um, so yes, it's a very sensitive. What 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 I was shocked by is I was the first person to create a geologic specific EMR in Epic, which is which is amazing. Like I couldn't believe it's 2020, 2020 when we did this. <laughs> um, so that's how far behind urology, in my opinion, was in the technology curve of treating patients with using technology. The other piece in 19, in 2019, prior to COVID, I pitched the organization to get on board with telemedicine. And this was February, I'm sorry, it was November and December. Uh, one of the physicians had a relationship in China was saying, hey, this is gonna get crazy. We really need to have some solutions. We went to the executive leadership team and thankfully I had a really good CEO who, who really was engaging. He said, all right, put a board together, put a team together, physicians, and see where we can take this. The problem at the time was you couldn't get reimbursed for, for telemedicine. So most of the physicians didn't want to do something for free, and as no one does. So we yeah. put together a group of people. We created a strategy on how to deal with telemedicine in urology, by the way, because it's very uncomfortable, as we just talked about, to show private parts on a television screen or a computer sure. or your handphone. So, yeah, people like men, I'll, I'll, yeah. again, I'm speaking for men, but like telemedicine, if you were to say urology is done via telemedicine, most men, I think, wouldn't do it because they don't want to know that they're, let's say, they're being recorded or like it could get out yeah. or it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, it's weird. They like, they prefer to be in person. Yeah, initially, <laughs> yes. But I think the comfort of your own home, doing some exams that are minimally invasive, um, things like that um, are really important to a patient too. So you get a secure sense when you have that relationship with a physician, and then you know that you're in good hands at that point um, yeah, with exactly. a good urology. And New Jersey Urology was a first-class urologic care institute. There, there's, there's none better, in my opinion. They, they were really good at what they did. And when we got to that platform and we were able to make money in, your, in seeing patients through telemedicine, it changed the perspective for urologists I think forever it's going to be for, and I was a big part of pushing that in in my career with New Jersey Urology, and got a lot of pushback. The other area of pushback is is patient check in um, because of age, and I don't buy it. Um, it doesn't really work that way. The technology is not age specific. 
It really isn't. Um, anyone can learn to do something. Everyone has tech phobia on some level. As a highly technical person, I still have tech phobia about things that I don't know how to do certain certain things. Sure. I don't maybe know how have the time to learn and I get nervous just like anyone else does. But it doesn't preclude us from doing things that would benefit a patient through technology. And I think as you just educate and train your physician, your physician body, your, your care people, people taking care of your patients, they'll back off. Um, but I heard it all. Yes, heard it all, including <laughs> I, my patients are too old and they'll never pick up on this. And, um, and, and there's, some, there's some truth to that, but it, it, it generally worked out. Well, hopefully that excuse goes out the window pretty quick because, you know, we've now been we we're now 20 plus years in with cell phones. So yes. I mean, like I think I think that that's that's that excuse got throughout. Absolutely. The well, Derek, man, it was awesome having you on the show. I want to say thank you for sharing some of your experience in this field. It's it's been a fun conversation because this is a personal, you know, like I said, when I met you for the first time, this is a personal area I am personally very interested in solving. I don't know quite how to solve it. So this is my way to make sure more people, engineers, if you're out there listening and you're working on problems and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I want to solve problems that are going to impact, have huge impact. I want to just kind of reiterate a little bit of what Derek said here, like getting more interoperability in medical technologies is the first step. Uh, so for the, the for the engineers out there working on this, I want to say thank you um, because this is – I think everyone that we know, I, and like I said, I I have not met anyone in the last 20 years that thinks their care is great. They typically all have some kind of complaint, to, even if it's just waiting time. So this is a field that desperately needs a lot of help, I think, I think, and we'll all benefit from it. So Derek, man, I really appreciate you sharing the stories of the challenges, some of the hopeful things that are going to be in the future. It was awesome having you on a guest on IT Visionaries. Thanks, Al. It was, it was my pleasure. I had a really good time. I'm really passionate about the subject. I really, um, I really appreciate giving me the opportunity to talk to you and, and your audience. So thank you. Wait, wait, wait. I think we got a little, I think we got, nope. Just playing. It's time to check yourself with the network health checkup brought to us by Zayo. This is where we ask questions about network health for modern infrastructure. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is the biggest challenge a hospital system would have in setting up a network to do what you're looking to do? Um, security, obviously. I mean, I think that's everyone's biggest challenge, right? So creating a, a secure platform that's you know reliable. So most hospitals aren't tech shops. They also, yep. you know, most medical practice, they're not tech shops. So they're right. not going to have a CISO on That's staff. Right. What do you recommend? You re- recommend them get a, like a MSP to oversee this? Yep. Or do you think companies should do what you're like? New Jersey Urology did with you and hire a CIO? So I, I was a CIO, but I wasn't a CISO. I hired a third party uh, a security group to to manage our security threats and you have to have some kind of solution. So if that's a managed partner and or bringing in that technical capability from a hard uh, FTE, for instance, bringing something on that's going to manage your network infrastructure and security, then, but you need somebody. And and that is the problem. The hospitals were behind the curve and healthcare systems didn't understand what a CISO was. Um, and I had to teach uh, very educated people why we need a CISO or a representative of a CISO or a contract CISO, if you will. I mean, sometimes the the answer is that simple. You probably should outsource that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, that makes total sense. When it comes to, so like one of the things that I've heard before is 
when people are setting up systems and they need they know they need to move massive amounts of data, internet sellers will often say like, hey, you need like a gig line or you need a special line. You need a direct connect. You yep. need all kinds of different direct. Do hospitals actually need these direct connects or can they use public cloud to move this data? That's a good question. From an emotional standpoint, I can answer that. And I would say direct connect works better. <laughs> it's a better <laughs> but I, I think from a technical, they probably could use a shared line, right? Um, what would what would stop them? The amount of the volume of data is probably no more than any other um, ve- vendor of that you know of that size. So yeah, I think the direct connect is probably overkill. Okay, well, listen, hey, this is this is one of those things where people because uh, we always joke about it here with our team at yeah. IT Visionaries, people often forget the internet's just a bunch of lines yeah. dug in the dirt. Uh, and uh, so it can be easily convinced, you can be easily convinced that you need, uh, you know, because if the line's not been dug to your place, of course, they want to charge you huge money, That's right. big contracts, and it could be a massive investment. I'm with you. I, I don't think it's, I think it's certainly it's helpful, but that shouldn't stop you from moving your data into a more interoperable fashion. To the cloud, uh, like so, if cloud services yep. are where you start, that's where you start. I wouldn't say like, oh, well, I can't do it for three more years because that's when they'll come dig the line. Like, correct. <laughs> yeah, and especially the way data is compressed now, and the way we deal with data is completely different. And and I think that you're right. I don't think you need a direct connect, in my opinion. <laughs> but it does help. <laughs> like I said, there's two answers there: emotionally and, and technically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Since you're a surfer, it's kind of like surfboards, right? Yes. It's like, sure, you could have more and you'll have more fun. But you, do you need it? You don't really No. <laughs> you don't need it. Awesome, Derek, man. I really appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. It was great hearing your stories and great hearing about your uh, some of the work you've done. Uh, I want to say thank you for joining us today and hopefully some waves coming your way. Yeah, absolutely. Same to you. And I'll share I'll share some of the boards I shaped recently with you when I... Like, like, Let's like go. Get some, take some pictures. We really need IT visionary surf because we've met a couple uh, tech leaders uh-huh. that are, are very into surfing. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, I have a company called Grimes Design. So you, uh, I'll, I'll share my link. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.